That's very uh, kind of you to applaud. I think just like most uh, dinner situations, everyone gives thanks for the food before the meal. That's a mistake. You should give thanks after the meal if the food was good. So just forget about the applause. You can give it afterwards if you like the message. And if you don't like the message, my name is Pastor John Ator, <laughs> lead pastor of the Gathering Place Church. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Okay, where are we, people? What are we in? The book of John. What chapter are we on? Four. Number four. You guys are good Christians. Serious people. Okay, this is a very, very important passage. There are a lot of firsts. You know, whenever you see something for the first time in the Bible, it's usually very, very important. And this particular chapter has several firsts which are very important. So let's pay attention to these firsts as this chapter unfolds. But before, before we get into that, we need some background regarding uh, the Samaritans. This is Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman in Samaria at the well. The significance of this interaction is lost to us if we don't have some understanding of who the Samaritans are, why they're in the Jewish homeland, and why they're allowed to stay in the Jewish homeland because the Jews don't want them there. And what is the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews? So let's do that background very quickly. We're not going to go to the Old Testament uh, passage by passage. I'm going to tell you about the situation just by way of background so you have a context for this particular story. In 2 Kings chapter 17, we see the Assyrians conquering the Jewish people and removing them from their land, God's land. The land is now empty, and the pagan Assyrians decide to colonize the land to get some financial gain out of it with crops and things. They want to colonize the land by bringing in five distinct people groups that they have conquered. And these five distinct people groups worship a total of seven different false gods. So you have coming into the Holy Land, the Jews' uh, land by, by birthright and by God's promise, you have five distinct nationalities, none of whom are Jewish, with seven different false gods being worshipped. So you can understand that there's no way the Jewish people would approve of something like this happening. But they didn't have control of it because they were one of the conquered people as well, and they were moved out of their land. So these five distinct groups, seven distinct false gods, are moved into the land of the true God, and they begin worshiping their many false gods. Now things, that's interesting, things immediately go wrong for them. They're attacked by lions repeatedly, over and over and over again, until the governor sends word of this to the king of Assyria, and he realizes immediately what to do. He sends Jewish priests back to God's land to teach these pagans how to worship the true God of Israel. Isn't that interesting? I mean, here's a pagan king who, who understands the territoriality of spiritual reign. And he says to himself, well, this is, this is, this is the Hebrew God's land. So as soon as we go in with other, these other false gods, all these bad things start to happen. 
it's the Hebrews people's land. So all get their priests to go back and teach all these pagans how to do it right. And when they do it right, the problems will go away. Brilliant. And that's what he does. The priests do this. The people start to worship God. But here's what's interesting. They don't have any of the Jewish customs. They don't have any of the Jewish religion. They don't have any of the Jewish ritual. But they've got a little bit of it taught by this priest, just enough to sort of worship the Hebrew God. And God honors that, and the attacks against them stop. So now they're installed in this place. They're not Jews. They don't really keep the temple law. They miss most of it. They kind of fudge the whole thing, and they've taken the place of the Jewish people in the Jewish homeland. Can you understand how the Jews might feel about that? They become the Samaritans of Jesus' day. They're not Jews. They don't care about the promises of Moses. Uh, They don't obey the law. Much of the Old Testament they ignore. And they won't worship in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews at the time of Jesus absolutely hate these people. They just despise them, but they can't get rid of them because the Romans let them stay. And Rome is the occupying force. Their existence in the promised land is a continual daily insult to everything the Jews believe. And there's nothing they can do about it except hate. Hate is what people do when they feel powerless. Hate is at the root of racism. To be to be relevant today, hate is at the root of racism. And this hatred by the time of Jesus has lasted for more than 700 years. Do you know how refined hatred can be when it's been practiced generation after generation for 700 years? Now, it's not just that the Jews hated the Samaritans, the Samaritans hated the Jews. And they had some practical jokes that really irritated the Jews. The Jews used to keep track of the changing of the months by lighting ritual fires on the first of the month. Now, this is important to the Jews because this is a form of mass communication. This is the Facebook of the day. And these fires would start to signal the change of the months. And it's really important because to the Jews, getting your ritual holidays and your Sabbaths correct is absolutely essential. So the Samaritans would go and light false fires a few days before. But never the same day, just enough to keep the Jews out of their minds with frustration and anger. Murder was not uncommon between them. The Jewish word for heretic is the same word for Samaritan. Now, are you getting a sense of the hatred that existed. Are you getting a sense of how radical this interaction between Jesus, a Jew, and this Samaritan woman in the heart of Samaria, how radical an interaction this is going to be? He is supposed to hate her. And she is supposed to hate him. That's the racial background we're dealing with. But wait, it gets much worse. She's also... A woman. And you say, well, so what? 
Well, in those days, the gulf between men and women was almost as wide as the gulf between Jew and Samaritan. Let me give you some of the teachings of the day. So you get a sense of how women were treated and seen in this Jewish culture. Here's a, here's a famous quote by a powerful rabbi of the day. Let their house be open wide and let the needy be members of thy household and talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife. How much more of his fellow's wife. Hence the sages have said, he that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at the last will inherit hell. <laughs> Guys, if I, if I tried to get a misogynistic statement to say to you today, I couldn't beat this. Talk with women, you're going to hell. Isn't that interesting? But wait, it gets worse. Here's what another teacher of the law talked about describing teaching a woman the law. Like, are you glad that your wife's in church today? Well, you shouldn't be. Or your daughter? Well, you shouldn't be. If any man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is as though he is teaching her lechery. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Here's an ancient Jewish prayer from their prayer book. And you've heard this one before. It's famous. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. Here's a rabbinic teaching about talking. Here's a rabbinic. Stop it. It's not funny. It's nasty. You're supposed to be angry. Here is a rabbinic saying about talking to a woman in the street. This is where Jesus is going to meet this woman in the street. Okay, so here we have a nice little Jewish ritual in law that applies exactly to Jesus behavior on this day. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. Now, look, this is how Jewish culture viewed respectable wives and daughters. But let's just make this situation a little bit worse. This is not a respectable woman. She is a serial adulterer. She is drawing water in the middle of the day because it's the only time when the respectable women will not be there in the heat of the day. They've already drawn their water. They've socialized together. They've chatted together. They're gone. There's nobody there. It's the worst time to be out carrying something heavy. And she's the only one at the well because it's the only time it's socially safe for her to go and be in public. She is a spiritual leper. The only human contact this woman knows is through the men she sleeps with. She is dirt. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. And by so doing, violates Jewish law. I just need to say this given current events. This isn't part of the message, but it's on my heart to do so. 
if racism has any chance of being healed in our country, it will be because we step across unacceptable cultural lines to talk with one another and build genuine relationships. And if you wonder where, whether there is a biblical precedent for this, we're reading about it today. Relational brokenness can only be healed through relationships. A relational problem can only be healed by relationships. All the rhetoric, all the talk, all the demonstrations and all the protests and all the media could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Only through relationships. Stepping across cultural, religious gender lines will we have hope of overcoming the spirit of division which is part of our corrupt human nature. And Jesus gives us the example in this story. And what does it start with? I'd like a drink of water. Will you give me a drink of water. It's a simple beginning, but it's amazing in view of what we've seen about the Samaritan and the gender divide. And she knows it's amazing, and she says so. Why are you asking me for a drink? You see, Jesus is treating her as she has never been treated before. He is treating her with respect and dignity. She is being treated as a real person, not a Samaritan, not just a woman, and not just a fallen woman. She's being treated as an individual who is worthy of respect. And this has never happened to her before, that she should be accepted like this. And then the conversation goes from straightforward matters to matters of faith. And Jesus mentions this strange thing, this living water that once drunk will remove thirst forever. Now, we know what he's talking about. He's alluding to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, no, no, there's something more important than the physical reality that you live in. There's something more important even than your physical needs to quench your thirst. Your deepest thirst is a spiritual thirst. It's a thirst of identity. Especially in her case. Because she really doesn't have an identity except a bad one. So he gives an allusion to this living water that once you taste it once, you'll never have to go for it again. It's living inside of you. It bubbles up like a stream. It changes you. It provides everything that you need. He's alluding to the gift of the Holy Spirit that John said... Jesus came to give the peace that never leaves and the peace that grows into eternal life. And she doesn't understand this. And she says, well, then give me some of this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. See, she's she's not getting it. That's the thing about Jesus. It doesn't make it easy. I mean, have you ever noticed some of the things he says? 
I mean, please. I know you're the creator of the universe, but could you just make it easy for me? He kind of hints. He gets our minds going well in advance of the answer. Gets us pondering and thinking, what the heck is he talking about? What is he talking about? Just drawing you and making you think. Boy, he's strange, but he sure is good. What a great description of God. He's strange, but he sure is good. He's unpredictable. It's hard to pin down, but he's, but he's wonderful all the same. But so far, this whole exchange, it's, it's, it's been on a purely natural level. It's about a drink and an allusion to the Holy Spirit. But listen, now she's about to experience the Holy Spirit. Because he's not just going to talk about this Holy Spirit. He's going to give her a taste of this Holy Spirit. An example of what it's like to have the Holy Spirit. And he says, John 4.16, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now, look at her reaction. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Why did she say that? Because this traveling preacher at the well had no idea of her past. And he just laid out for her a perfect summary of her life to date. She knows something supernatural is going on here. He could not have naturally known this. He's talking about the core of my identity. He's talking about my biggest life problem. He's talking about the messes that I've made. She's overwhelmed with this word that Jesus told her for the simple reason that he could not have known this except from God. So he must be a prophet. He must be one of these supernatural guys that hears from God. He's the real thing. He's a prophet who speaks from God. But something else is happening here. She's been confronted with her moral failure. She's been confronted with what has become her primary identity. She's a serial adulterer. She's a social pariah. She's a spiritual leper. And she is flustered. Now she knows. Here's the interesting thing. Up until this point, it's just been a nice conversation with some strange Jewish guy who wandered in the land he shouldn't be in and is treating me wonderfully. That's kind of shocking. But now she realizes it's worse than that. I'm in the presence of a holy man who speaks for God. And what she's expecting in this moment is what every other holy man from, who speaks from God has ever given her, which is judgment. Do you get it? She's expecting judgment. Because that's all religion will ever give you. Hello? And she has lived under false religion and she's been abused by the things that holy men say about her. And she's been devalued in all these ways by a Jewish culture, which is fundamentally a religious culture. 
And now a man comes along who's a holy man who violates all these religious norms, all these religious rules and regulations in order to bring love and acceptance to her. Can you understand how inconceivable this is for her? This is all the tilt lights are going off. This is impossible. This can't be happening. And she's completely flustered. So she does what we do whenever we're, conf- we're confronted with our sin. We change the subject. We deflect. And this is what she does. She changes the subject. She gets theological, which is also what we do. When faced with your sin, theologize about it. And she says, well, um, you know, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here. What a non sequitur. What a bizarre thing to say. But Jesus is not flustered. He uses this subject to tell her that real worship. Now listen to this. Real worship that God values, that really matters is not a matter of place or things or style, but a matter of the heart, the spirit, and the truth about who is the truth, Jesus. Let me say that again. True worship is not a matter of place or things or style or ritual. It is a matter of the heart, the spirit, and the truth about him who is the truth. And he lays this out to her and he's hinting Like, hello, ask the question, who are you anyway? And he's hinting at the answer. And she doesn't understand all this, but she sort of does because she says, well, someday the Messiah is going to come and he's going to make everything clear. She never thought he's going to come and make everything clear to me. Personally. I mean, theologically, theoretically, in some wonderful way, the answer is going to come and he's going to be great and everything will be okay and we'll finally understand things. But seriously, I get to be the person he first reveals his identity to? Me? A Sam Ho? That was a joke. Samaritan Ho? Sam Ho? Gosh, you people are slow. I failed you, obviously, if I can't do better than that. I pack my tents and go home. Keep laughing, I love that. She doesn't understand this, but someday the Messiah is going to come. He's going to make everything clear. And then Jesus does an amazing thing, which he has not yet done outside of a small, small circle of his committed followers. He says, quote, I who speak to you am he. Until he is on trial for his life, this is the first and only time he tells anyone other than a few of his closest disciples who he is before his death. This is a first of huge significance. This is amazing that he would be talking to a Samaritan, a woman, and a fallen woman. And he's talking about a matter of faith And he's making this revelation to her. 
Is this an honor or what? Now listen, the effect of his love and his acceptance and the prophetic nature of the revelation he gave her about her identity and her past, the love, the acceptance, and the supernatural words he spoke has an immediate effect. She runs and goes to tell all those she has been ashamed to even look at in public. She goes and finds them and begins telling them, I met a guy who told me everything I ever did. Now, she's wrong. He didn't tell her everything she ever did. He just told her everything she ever did wrong. But since that was her identity, that was the sum total of who she is as far as she is concerned. But the minute he extends this acceptance and this love to her, her identity is so radically altered by this encounter of love that she has the confidence to leave this place and run and find every single person she can and say, people, I met the big one. I, I met the Messiah. you got to come and hear what he says. We all have, or uh, we all should have, a deep desire to see people come to know Jesus. That's the business we're in, people. Frankly, it's almost all that matters. There's only one thing that matters as much, and that's that we love one another, according to Jesus. We are in the business of helping people find Jesus, and you know how it works? Love and acceptance and an example of the love of God through the Holy Spirit. That's how we do it. Anything less than that's not genuine. Anything less than that is not transformational. Anything less than that is not Jesus. This is how we do it. We step across cultural lines. We step across religious lines. We step across racial lines. We step across gender lines. We step across social conventions and rules to love people that we should not be loving, quote unquote. Only when we're loving the people we should not be loving do we speak with spiritual authority. And our words have power because before the words were spoken, love was given. That's how he worked. That's how we work. Now, this incident is important for many reasons. I told you there were bursts, and here they are. Number one, this Samaritan woman is the first non-Jewish convert. What a dignity. What a statement. Number two, she's the first missionary in the Bible. She runs and finds people and says, you've got to meet this guy. She's the first evangelist in the Bible. Yeah, that's my final point. Thanks for stealing it. (laughs) 
Number three, she is the first person to be told by Jesus that he is God come to man. His true identity. She is a heretic, a woman, and an obvious sinner. She is, she is listen, she is the last person we would pick for all these honors. Come on. If we had, like, nominate someone in this church to be given these, these honors, we would all sit down and think of the best person we could find. Jesus found the worst person he could find. Hello? See, religion honors goodness. God honors brokenness. Now, doesn't that just convict us about the degree to which we're still living under religion? That this is how we see people's value? I had lunch with Rich Wilkerson and his wife in a mega church in Miami. Famous mega church. had lunch with them last week. And uh, I asked them how their church grew. And they took a little church in the Haitian ghettos of Miami. And it was just tiny and it was struggling and it was desperately poor and it was in a terrible, terrible area of Miami. People, Haitian people, used to sleep on the steps of the church to take shelter. They have to step over them on Sunday morning to do church. And one Sunday, Rich's wife asked the Lord, how are we going to build this church? And he said, stop ignoring the people you step over. To get into the building. So they made it their goal to take care of the poor and the broken in that community. And God multiplied every single program and effort that they made until the city was coming to them for advice on how to do social programs. The state took notice, the government. Governor took notice. Most of their staff are funded by public funds because they've stepped across these boundaries to give themselves to the people most forgotten, devalued, and neglected by the rest of the religious establishment. She's the last person we'd pick for these honors. She's the first person Jesus picks. And here's the wonder. He continues to pick this way today. You tell yourself you're not good enough to be used by him. He's already picked you. What kind of love is this that can transform a shame-filled human sinner into a joy-filled evangelist in ten minutes. A village comes to faith because the least qualified person, 
tells of a ten-minute encounter with Jesus. What kind of love is this? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he amazing? How can you not love him? How can you not want to give your whole life to him? And all around us, every day, wherever we go, are lonely and neglected people who've lost their worth and their dignity. And we just experience their anger and their frustration. And we try to avoid them. And as John once said, God is drawn to weakness and brokenness. We're all missionaries. We're all evangelists. And we're all broken people. God picks broken people to heal broken people. Every single one of us, right? Every single one of us. Let's close our eyes. I hear God speaking in my head. He's saying, ask them a question. And the question he's asking is, do you want to be used by me? Do you want to be used by me? If you want to be used by him, just put your hand up for a minute. Lord, you see the hands. Now listen, just listen. Just, just pause and now just listen. Pay attention to the next thought that comes into your mind. Father, what do you want to say to them? Each person, what do you want to say right now? In answer to their statement, I want to be used by you. What do you want to say to them? Did he speak to you? What thought came to your mind? What did he say? Anybody out loud, what did he say? What? What? Repent. <laughs> Pardon? Share my love. What else did he say? Then go. It's <laughs> so practical. Hmm? Go deeper. What else? What did he say? Trust. What else? What else? I'm with you. Man, there's nothing more comforting to hear if you're being sent out then I am with you. What else? I'll give you easy opportunities. Lord, multiply the easy opportunities. And please give Phil all the hard ones. <laughs> what else did he say? 
I'll show you the way. Hmm? Love them well. Oh, people, we're surrounded by opportunities to love people every day. Every day. Every person we come across, we can make their day a little bit better or a little bit worse. It's so easy, actually. Okay. So, can we thank Mark for the word this morning? Um, so, I have a couple things on my mind, and uh, I was debating whether to share them or not because of the time. So, I'll be very quick. But then, Kirsten, who uh, is a very mature prophetess in the house, meaning that she gets visions, thoughts, ideas from God, and they're accurate. Uh, so I want to share this real quick. God is doing something fresh and new in our church right now, and reaching the one is what it is. That Jesus' heart for the one is undeniable. I mean, you know, the Son of God has three and a half years to reach the world. Three and a half years was how long his ministry was. And yet he spends time with individuals like this. Why would he? I mean, come on. If we, if we had a job to do, we had three and a half years to do it, like save the entire planet, we wouldn't be spending time with one person. We'd be filling stadiums as often as we could. I believe it's because he cares about every human being on the planet. He just cares about people, individuals. So going after the one. And so I want to tell you a quick story. Um, a couple years ago in a Wednesday night prayer meeting, Francisco came. He works at um, solar turbines or where do you work? General Atomics, same thing. So he works at General Atomics as an engineer, and he said that, um, will you pray for this gal named Marsha? I work with her, and I've witnessed to her. So we, Wednesday night prayer, we all pray. Then the next week, I am on jury duty in El Cajon in East County, and we break for lunch, and I'm walking down the street. I'm going to go into this restaurant. And then I leave the restaurant, and I'm on the phone. I'm walking across the street, and I end up at another restaurant. I thought, why didn't I eat over there? That's weird. Why did I walk across the street? I'm thinking this. And then there was a, a girl that was in the uh, jury pool, and I just knew her by her face because she was in the jury pool. And I asked her if she wanted to eat lunch. And I'm thinking as I'm asking her, I'm a married man. This is not good. And I'm a pastor. What if somebody sees me eating lunch with a girl? I thought, Why are you doing this? I'm asking myself. And she goes, okay. So we're sitting down having lunch, and I'm thinking, this is wrong. And as I get to talking to her, it's like, so where do you work? General Atomics. What is your name? Marsha. I'm like, do you know Francisco? She said, yes. I said, you have got to be kidding me. I said, we just prayed for you once not in our prayer meeting. And I led her to the Lord right there. Is that insanity? On this side of heaven, that looks crazy. For God, he's like, watch this. Three million people in San Diego, no problem. That shows us how much, one, God is involved in the evangelism process. And secondly, how passionate he is about every individual. So recently, the Lord has spoken to us supernaturally about reaching the lost. That's what he wants to do with every one of us. 
And so, Kirsten, we share what you got during worship, and then we are going to pray, and we're going to go. Um, during worship, I saw a picture of nets, and God revealed to me that each one of us has a net. And he was showing me that if we would open them wide and prepare our hearts and our posture, not closing off our nets, not trying to get uh, just one small thing, but if we open them wide, he would pour fish into them. And I was reminded of the parable, or actually the story, it wasn't a parable, the story in the Bible where the disciples are out in the boat and they're casting their nets and they're fishing all night and they haven't caught anything. Mm. And what does Jesus say to them? Cast your net on the other side. You've been doing it one way, but let me direct your steps. Let me, you prepare your hearts, you prepare your nets, but be specific in listening and hearing and being directed in this new season. And watch what God does. I feel like all of us are in the same position. We want to be used by God. We want our nets to be full. We want to know that we're making a difference in the world, that we have impact, that we have fruit. And God is saying, you will. If you open yourself up, prepare your hearts to receive, and then follow my clear direction and cast them where I'm telling you to, they will be full and you will see impact. You will see success. You will see touching lives. You will see healings. I felt such a strong um, impression that miracles were part of those fish, mm. that it wasn't just people. It, it, in, the, in the impression I got during worship, it wasn't even necessarily people. It was that open yourself up for me to do anything, to pour into you and watch the miracles that happen, watch the lives that you touch, and watch the fish that come. Amen. If that's for you, let's all stand. If that's for you, just stand to your feet. If you want to be used by God in this season, this is not hype. This is a prophetic moment God is doing this work right now there's there's a a a person in our congregation who God has illuminated who has got an evangelistic gift and we've decided that they're going to train the leadership first look, the leadership know how to lead people to Christ, the leadership understands the great commission but we want a fresh impartation as the leadership of this church we want to be provoked to evangelism again, we want to learn new ways and methods to reach the one and and so it starts with us and then we're going to begin doing more training for you so that we can be more effective fishers of men and women wherever we go so if that's you you say i really do want to be used by god in that way just open your hands toward heaven in the marketplace in the educational arenas in your neighborhoods wherever you go whatever you do being a fisher of men and women. Just say, Jesus, I want to be used by you like never before. Give me your heart for the one. Order my steps. I am available now. To reaching the one. I'm going to ask you to pray this big prayer right now. Do it with courage. Jesus, I give you permission to make reaching the one 
the most important thing in my life. Because it's the most important thing in your life. Now I'm going to pray. Lord, I ask that you pour out a spirit of evangelism on this body. Not a program, but a heart. May your heart for the harvest fill this house. Pour out your spirit, your love, your compassion on us so the marshes can be saved, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said amen. Amen, amen, and amen. Okay, so if you've never given your life to Christ before, I'm going to be right down front here, and I want to pray with you.